Welcome to the Rooted Healing Podcast, where we seek to deepen our kinship with the living world and with the great mystery that runs through us. This is a space where stories heal with words that weave us closer to our wild and daring natures, bringing together the expansive minds, topics, and ideas that help us heal, reimagine, and co-create the world we wish to thrive in. In uh, ancestral practices, we find uh, always alteration of consciousness. Uh, it's not just for the sake of it, not just to go out of your body and experience this, or reconnecting with the divine. It's not just because of that. Um, we have the amazing uh, ability, literally, to change our state of consciousness, and as we change it, we can have another perspective. So when we have another perspective, novel thinking, for example, about a disorder, and then it comes to the diagnosis, no? The shamanic diagnosis is very different. <laughs> so you alter your consciousness to deeply understand the situation. Elisa Fusi is an Italian molecular biologist, visionary herbalist and writer with a research focus on human pathology, mycology, neuroscience and ecology. She graduated in herbal medicine in London and has worked in laboratories in Europe, Madagascar and Cambodia. She started an ongoing investigation on folk medicine, ancestral rituals and indigenous cultures all over the world, living with different indigenous groups in Madagascar and across Central and South America. She later obtained a diploma in mind medicine issued by the Mind Medicine Institute of Guatemala. She has recently trained with Cambo by the Matsas people, promoting several initiatives protecting the rights of the land and the people of the Amazonian basin along the way. After a near-death experience, her quest for a more complete understanding of human consciousness became stronger. She founded an environmental organization called You Are Home, and later in 2012, she created Alchemia, an educational center and intentional space for promoting alternative teachings on herbalism, shamanism, and alchemy, recently relocated to Costa Rica. Alchemia's mission is to guide the individual towards self-realization and self-sufficiency by exploring the more authentic forms of ancestral practices through an unfiltered connection to nature in order to promote the exchange of wisdom, traditional knowledge, and to experience living in mutual symbiosis with nature, removing unnecessary technology and the usual comforts. Elisa is also a psychoneuroendocrine immunology practitioner and psychooncologist, offering advice, resources, and courses and support to people with cancer and autoimmune disorders at her clinic in Costa Rica. To accompany this episode, Elisa has generously offered a personal consultation on chronic disorders. It'll be a video call for one of our patrons. This is an amazing opportunity and I personally would love to receive Elisa's one-on-one support and guidance, whether that's cancer, autoimmune, whatever it is. So if you're a podcast patron... Um, or if you'd like to become one, we're going to let that run for a month to see who comments who would really like to access this beautiful offering. You can become a podcast patron from £2 a month. That's like buying me a hot chocolate. And you will have instant access to a rich archive of resources from our previous guests. Head to patreon.com slash healing to support the show. Before we jump into the episode, we still have spaces left at Ancestral, which is happening next month, July the 10th to the 16th in North Wales. Join us for a truly unique opportunity to fully embody native wisdom and living, become a part of the village woven into the Celtic landscape, where the alchemy of Welsh rainforest, rushing river, mystical lake, ancient oaks, roundhouse councils, fireside stories, ancient crafts, sacred songs, and ancestral foods from the hearth will reverberate through your being, bringing insight into what it means to be interrelated and how we can become rooted ancestors for our future generations. We are offering a 10% discount to listeners. Head to rootedhealing.org ancestral to learn more and reserve your spot. We also have a free summer solstice ceremonial gathering in Dorset in two weeks' time. You can register by the link in the show notes. 
and we're now accepting applications for Earth Medicine, our signature psilocybin retreat in the Netherlands. And our next immersion is in October. Head to rootedhealing.org slash earthmedicine to learn more. I'd love to understand what led you to the depths of this work. I mean, I've, I've seen that you've experienced a near death encounter. Was that a part of what led you to explore the work that you are now? Yeah, definitely an inquisitive mind is enough sometimes to go deeper in a subject you you love. So the reason I was uh, fascinated by medicine, and it's because literally I don't feel like a detachment from medicine and philosophy. (laughs) So in an early stage of life, when I started to study uh, molecular biology and pathology at uni, I was very much in love with all the different uh, aspects of it, not written in books. <laughs> so I started to experience a different form of mm. medicine. Uh, that was an early stage. Then definitely experiences in life. They brought me, they brought me to understand that uh, medicine is a personal path as well, uh, coming from ancestral practices to modern medicine, uh, we feel this connection, not from the two, but uh, the reality is that it's always about us. Mm? So it's also we want to go deeper and understand ourselves and the body. Definitely, it's uh, part of it, mm? but not the only thing. So let's say I found a profound void in uh, conventional medicine studied, and uh, that's what brought me to explore. It was genuine desire to explore, literally, without uh, the real purpose of helping others at the beginning. Then it's obvious <laughs> that we grow uh, the purpose of it. And so now definitely I'm in the position and I don't really, really have uh, an end to, to continuous research. So it's still ongoing and uh, I think it will never end. <laughs> so... I'm still researching and investigating with uh, an open mind. Mm. Um, yeah, the early fascination also of nature helped a lot <laughs> because in nature I found uh, the most uh, significant medicine. And when I refer to medicine, I also refer to the form of heal ourselves spontaneously and in many different ways, not just physically. So. The two together, yeah, I guess they were a bomb. (laughs) And then I love to travel, so that's an important part because uh, if you're stuck in us, in you know, in the same environment, you you are exposed to the same kind of thinking around you. You read the same books and so on. You never have the chance to enlarge your perspective. So studying also with different groups. Uh, led me to this point when I can collect uh, not just information or just, uh, you know, sterile data, but experience. Mm, So that's, let's say, a brief (laughs) summary of what uh, brought me here, but then definitely personal experience as well. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. So your your near-death experience came later, I'm assuming, and didn't really contribute to your initial curiosity um, but I, I am curious if you're happy to share. I'd love to hear about how this did shape you, especially if you're already immersed in the healing arts. Uh, yeah, no, no problems. I actually uh, thought about it a couple of days ago, like how can change life definitely, how it's a peculiar experience, and how it was strongly inviting me to appreciation for life definitely, but mm-hmm. also most importantly to uh, have less fear of death. I will not say I'm not scared of death, (laughs) but it was an instant uh, moment. And uh, then with a lot of consequences, uh, leading me to the path of uh, um, understanding, accepting death as a form of uh, uh, shifting, not as uh, the end of everything. And uh, if you think for a moment, Veronica, like... uh, if we remove 
in an instant the, the fear of death. Wow, how <laughs> will be our life? How will be humanity? You know, yeah. it's definitely uh, limiting how we see that, especially in, in industrialized society where we have this refusal of that, and in medicine it's so evident. And then in a moment you just realize that uh, you are beyond the body. There's something more, it's different, but it opens up to a series of behaviors when you're back. And so um, beyond words, literally, very difficult to explain, but what was um, the consequence of this experience? And it was more than 10 years ago, actually. Uh, it's uh, this appreciation <laughs> for living, existing, and... Uh, definitely also changed the way I was looking at medicine and healing. And that's how everything started. It's how I started my path in uh, uh, the educational center. I have courses and uh, now uh, the natural medicine clinic. Mm. Uh, but definitely it was a big change uh, in, my, <laughs> in, my, in my life. Mm. So... I cannot even express how much it changed me. <laughs> but I, I can tell you, if I'm this person right now, it's also because of that. And I feel particularly blessed. <laughs> because you retain, uh, beyond the information, you can retain an interpretation of the experience, you know, because it's personal. I have this uh, sense of peace that it changes everything. Change the way you interact with people, the way you treat yourself, the way you walk this, you know, plain planet. <laughs> so it's a, it's a profound shift. I'm very grateful. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine how powerful it must have been. And it reminds me of this notion to die before you die. I think it was Rumi or I think it's been written somewhere in some ancient cave, I don't know. Um, but this idea that when we experience or we transcend our normal ego identifying state of selfhood and we let go, we sort of have a death experience, we learn to live awake. We learn to really live. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So a lot of your work is focused on healing and treating chronic disease. I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about this and how your approach differs from perhaps mainstream conventional um, modalities. Yeah, no, it's a big topic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's not because it's uh, on the rise. It's just because now um, it's, it feels very much confusing in conventional medicine, the study of chronic disorders. And why is that? Um, because most doctors of uh, biomedicine, let's say, they are very much trained in uh, emergency care and uh, acute disorders. And we thank for that. Mm, I mean, if we have an hemorrhage, we absolutely need that. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, absolutely life-saving. But when it comes to a disorder that it's very difficult to test and analyze through uh, our technology, and it's silent, sometimes it appears, sometimes it disappears, it comes with a, a constellation of symptoms and signs that can be hardly connected uh, if we follow protocols. So the big problem at the moment is that uh, conventional medicine is not able or fully able uh, to investigate properly these uh, connections between the different symptoms uh, because of lack of time. Mm. And that's uh, crazy because <laughs> these disorders, they, they need um, an accurate uh, investigation. Um, because they are intricate, I call it the intricate web, web of illness because of that. I just remind myself that the reason also I like to study this is because it, you don't need to have a lazy mind. Because if you have it, you cannot understand the disorders. You need to engage in a lot of thinking and connect the different parts of the body and ultimately also the mind. Mm. And so imagine like a conventional doctor and having a limited time 
to just give answers or to find the treatment. We're speaking about minutes sometimes. How is it possible? They don't even have the time to read articles, you know, and they follow protocols. There is a system behind them. So chronic disorders is the way of nature to tell us we need to uh, stop, breathe, and take time to reflect on what's happening. Because uh, the unicity of the person, we have also a unique way to respond to a chronic disorders because it takes a long time to accumulate different factors and elements that are disturbing our health. Actually, we are an amazing, uh, you know, we are not machines, definitely, but we have amazing bodies and uh, our physiology is very efficient. So we need time to Mm. disrupt all of that. And it comes to be very different for each person. Um, And some of these disorders, uh, they are mind-body disorders, body-mind disorder reverse, an example. We think of a people, a person with a leaky gut, hmm? uh, dysbiosis or just uh, um, an alteration of the microbiome. And so a digestive problem. And then we know now through science that this can uh, bring us to have a depressive mood or eventually in time depression. But then we know also that uh, depression can lead to digestive mm-hmm. problems and so on. So it's, it's intricate because everything is connected in our body and not only in our body. Mm. We have definitely we receive influence from uh, what we think, the relationships we have, the environment around us. So we need to take all these elements and to take the time, literally time, to investigate and understand what's going on. So chronic disorders, uh, they sometimes look uh, subtle, but there is something happening, I think, because it's, it's that we are a little bit detached from ourselves. No, we don't perceive these changes, but they are there. So let's say sometimes a chronic disorder uh, requires like even 10 years to manifest. But what is before that? Is there any sign that I can understand in my body telling me that something is uh, out of balance? And the answer is yes, definitely they're there, but we look like absent sometimes. We don't take the time to connect to our bodies, to, to ask ourselves, how do I feel today and why is that? Is it something changing my physiology in the way I breathe? Uh, so... We don't. And again, it's a question of time. <laughs> so it's a, because it looks we are busy, but we should feel more responsible for our bodies. That's the truth. It's not something, you know, you can uh, force. It should be natural that we, we care for ourselves and we take the time to also be more in touch with ourselves. In shamanic cultures, it's very normal that a person when he's sick is sent in isolation even, to just take the time to properly establish a dialogue which has been lost, you know, with the self, so not just with the body. And why is that difficult for us? You know, why we always uh, look for fixing a disorder when it's too late or when it's fully manifested. Uh, Chronic disorders, uh, they're teaching us this in this moment, uh, to take more time to observe and that's the key, <laughs> because most of these chronic disorders, they can be prevented, or at least uh, we can just, you know, um, observe and find that there is some uh, <coughs> imbalance so that we can avoid the consequences, so come back to harmony. And in my opinion, this is uh, also wider on the rise, uh, not just depending on ourselves. Of course, there are a lot of external uh, factors that we should be in control of, but we are not. <laughs> mm. Like, uh, you know, con- contaminants, pollutions. Um, again, in my opinion, uh, chronic disorders, they were telling us something else. Uh, if there are things that we can prevent, like diet, lifestyle, uh, behaviors, how, how we think, you know, 
Uh, there are things we cannot control individually. We have to control these uh, as a society collectively. This is, for example, the environment we live in and the society we run. And so we cannot control as individual the uh, contamination of the air or the water. Mm. But as collective individuals, yes, we can. So if we are now recognizing that a lot of these elements that can disrupt our balance and provoke uh, chronic disorders, they are exactly there in the elements, in the air, in the water, in the way we manage our lives. We should act uh, as a collective. That's also my opinion. It's a big shift from medicine to ecology, but it's there. (laughs) They are the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are the ecological self. We're not just this individual that's separate. We are woven with the landscapes. And I had um, Sophie Strand come on the podcast and she was saying, perhaps we need to redefine health. Perhaps people experiencing illness are in deeper symbiosis with a planet that is experiencing illness. And it resonated in many ways, especially when you look at the statistics of um, even just gender with autoimmunity, for example, it seems that women are twice as likely to develop autoimmune diseases. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious from your work and from having the holistic approach that you do, what are the main patterns of illness that you perceive whether that's predominantly autoimmune conditions or cancer, or if that's of a similar pattern of illness. Actually, you also called, um, yeah, one of the the percentage that is very difficult to um, to investigate, like how is that women are more prone to develop autoimmune disorders. So coming back to the to the roots. We know now, it's established, that most of autoimmune disorders have a chronic inflammation pattern. So at the end, we always come back to that, chronic inflammation. It's a big thing. (laughs) And um, there is something happening. There is a trigger, more triggers, but there is one that captured my attention even in, in, uh, yeah, many, many years ago, actually, because it's it's an old investigation. It's that most autoimmune disorders are triggered by uh, trauma. Mm. Now, it's true that not in all societies, but let's say <laughs> for what it, my experience is, women are definitely more sensitive to trauma. Mm? And uh, they can potentially also be more sensitive in general to happenings and events. So if trauma is one of the big triggers and also stress, and stress can mean many things, grief, for example, or long periods uh, of isolation and so on, um, all these things, they contribute to the manifestation of an autoimmune disorder, but the autoimmune disorder is probably there, or at least it's waiting to see what's going to happen in the body. Um, I want to touch this briefly because it's a Pandora box, yeah. <laughs> chronic inflammation, but we need to think of our cells, tissues, organs, this, the whole systems in our body to be connected definitely, but also we have an environment where they live. And so they're not disconnected from their environment, which means a lot of things, interstitial fluids, the extracellular matrix and so on. So many things happening and that can lead to accumulation of toxins, for example, and uh, accumulation also of potential uh, allergens and so on, we know. But why is that that only a percentage of people uh, who is exposed to these is getting sick and the others not? It's the same story of uh, putting a virus inside a room with 10 people and just three of them are sick and the others not. Why is that? The same virus, the same exposition, but not everybody is reacting the same. Because especially in uh, autoimmune disorders, we have a confused immune system. It's not yeah. like uh, an enemy, like sometimes it's said, you know, it's uh, uh, revolving or, sorry, it's actually uh, out of control and attacking the self. It's not just that. It's not able to recognize what it's doing 
uh, because it's misle- misled, so it's more a sort of uh, dysfunction, a dysfunctional immune system that has been triggered by uh, long-term inflammation, mm. which means lack of adaptation. It's not a case, it's the adaptive system, the adaptive immune system that is uh, out of control. It's because uh, of this accumulation of different elements, disturbing elements, that the body is not more able to be resilient. And so, and that's not just the body, it's also the mind. If we are living a period of stress, let's say me and you, <laughs> and different, like uh, different persons, same events, same situations, but different way to cope with stress. Um, it's definitely true that this will make a difference. <laughs> the way we cope with stress, the way we adapt to a stressful situation, which can be mild trauma or a strong event. Um, so the body, yeah, the body knows. <laughs> and the body will, uh, at a certain point, explode. And so the immune system is uh, dysregulated. Yeah, and... <laughs> I find that really fascinating because I've recovered from an autoimmune condition that I've had since my early teens, if not earlier. And I think a big piece of that was recognizing trauma and just the learn pattern of uh, an environment that was very volatile, like didn't feel very safe. And so I think my body felt like it needed to be overly defensive. Mm -hmm. Um, amongst all the other things like I know that also you know I was given antibiotics at a young age Mm. um to deal with a kidney infection which happened right when my parents were divorcing um so my gut microbiome must have just gone you know must have really I can just see there's all these different pieces of the puzzle and it's been such a journey I'm very grateful for it and I had cancer when I was 20, so I, on a very personal level, but I think, you know, cancer is so widespread. It would be really interesting to hear you talk about your approach with cancer. Mm, yes, as you said, um, it's very difficult sometimes to uh, speak about cancer and to remove the fear and the stigma <laughs> around cancer. Yeah, It's true, it's the most difficult part. As soon as we hear the word, we are in panic, and panic doesn't help, definitely. (laughs) So um, what I really believe is that, uh, um, to be honest, cancer can be called a a problem of longevity. (laughs) And that's true. Biologically speaking, for example, we are more prone to have cancer because our life expectancy has increased, true, but we age bad. Okay, so there is no doubt about that. Except few uh, individuals in this planet, we can see how we age not properly. Now it should be. Um, so, as we were speaking already about accumulation of elements of disruption, so disruption of uh, balance, homeostasis, uh, when we, um, we have cancer in a later stage of life, definitely it could be considered in this specific moment, almost physiological. But you mentioned, for example, you had cancer already when you were young. I myself experienced you know, some uh, very early stage of cancer when I was young. So what is this about? <laughs> so it's not about just longevity, you know, the mm-hmm. oxidation of cells and so on. Um, the interpretation uh, we give now about cancer in conventional medicine um, is started to be obsolete. That's true. We we are really uh, arriving to a shift of a paradigm in the uh, theory of uh, the origin of cancer. And why is that? Um, because as you know, the main theory we are following, so, so the treatments we use, they're following a theory that says, okay, there is a series of mutations, not just one actually, accumulating in a single cell changing the DNA, and then the cell is rug and is out of control, and this is how it's cancer spreading. Um, it's not enough. So we've seen already, like, through several experiments, and uh, it's more recent, but it's uh, definitely realistic theory where uh, 
cancer is not a cell problem. Hmm? It's not cell-based pathology. Uh, actually, also because we have this old, old perspective about uh, cell, a cell to be a, um, a unit. But uh, believe me, if you put a cell alone, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> it's not even alive almost. What do we need? We need uh, organization. We need tissues. We need an organism. So we are speaking about a different level. And that's why the uh, tissue organization field theory was born, saying like, you know, these cells, they just don't function alone. They communicate between them. They communicate between tissues, other molecules and organs and so on. So again, I can tell that accordingly to this theory, what I really think it's real, uh, cancer is a communication problem. So if you want to look at the psychosomatic aspect, it's like uh, our cells are not more conversing. And so they don't follow orders because there are no orders to be given. There is lack of communication. It's detachment, literally. Um, how is this theory more uh, like more realistic? Because um, if you actually take um, even an instant picture of your body right now, it can be me, you or another person, randomly, you're going to see that there are cancer cells in our body every time, at different ages, later or earlier, doesn't matter, there are. And why is that? Because it's normal to have mutations and accumulation of mutations, it's something there. But we have an amazing system which is regulating this potential, you know, hazard in the body, and so everything is kept safe. But how is it possible? Because the other healthy cells, let's say the, the ones that are able to communicate, uh, they have an organization. Mm? And so they instruct mm, the potentially uh, dangerous cells to uh, behave uh, regularly. Mm? So they, they say they normalize other cells. So this has been uh, proven experimentally. And so in this theory, and that's the most uh, incredible part, uh, um, there is hope because it said, you know, <laughs> tissues, they can be normalized. And so potentially cancer cells, they can reverse their status. Mm? So they can be healthier again. Now image, if we translate these line of thoughts into treatments, it means like, for example, uh, instead of bombing the unhealthy cells, we start to instruct them. Mm? So we promote the healthier cells. We help them to thrive better. So what, uh, what is this line of thought? Um, it's telling us that, for example, if we act uh, um, aggressively, even, for example, with the surgery, or chemo or radiotherapy against uh, cells in general, we can potentially create more disruption mm. because the architecture of the tissues, the architecture of the cells, uh, they can potentially be more sensitive. And so instead of helping, you know, um, these cells to reorganize and normalize, we are actually working on the opposite direction. We are what is the, the so-called war against cancer. Mm. No, it's a real war because we use very strong weapons. And so this side of the theory, and that's why I found it very interesting and uh, applicable. So it's because it's telling us, no, we need more gentle therapies to actually bring back the microenvironment of the cells to be healthy. Yeah. And so we can act uh, just bringing a right environment around these cells so they can feel that they can come back to normality. If you apply this to society, you see there is always some psychosomatic meaning here and, and there. We can change the environment around us, the way we breathe, how we connect to each other, and we will see that eventually we all feel better. If It's like a little bit like when... Uh, um, we want to um, put a criminal in jail, no? And in our society, it has to be punished. And sometimes we use aggressive weapons again. Mm? Mm. Um, but what if, <laughs> you know, we can educate, train and help 
So that's why I think this theory can be uh, a way to revolutionize a little bit the treatments. And I really believe in the future, maybe in 20 years or less, we will already see a different ways to treat cancer because remember that cancer already like 40, 50 years ago, it was considered to be a lethal uh, disorder and uh, it was potentially like uh, um, a, a death sentence. Mm-hmm. So now it's called a chronic disorder. We can prolong the life of people. The, the life expectancy is longer. And what if in 10, 20 years, changing treatments, because that's the point. Mm. What if we can, you know, uh, start to reverse? And so we're going to call cancer differently then. Um, and that's my hope, my interest also, because I think uh, natural therapies, they are Again, they're very suitable for chronic disorders and cancer too. Even we perce- maybe we perceive them as light, you know, <laughs> not strong. It's not correct because as there are many risks, uh, sorry, many risk factors and elements that can provoke cancer. And we know that uh, you may have several, many different gentle weapons still effective that they can help the body to uh, come back to homeostasis or balance. We have to change the environment of these poor cells. You know, they need to to find back health around them. And so, yeah, I haven't touched the mental aspects, of course, but <laughs> as you are fully aware, definitely we also need to, to cope and to adapt mm, to a, a disorder. Yeah. So the mind is absolutely important. And um, in my personal, you know, path and uh, my work, I see cancer, for example, is not always like, you know, that sentence. Also, if I speak with survivors, wow, what, what did they have back from cancer? They found back gratitude, uh, appreciation for life. They found a spiritual way to interpret the world. So it's not just death. And even if it's death, then... It's still, you know, a way to understand yourself through illness. And so uh, definitely not, not the most pleasant way, but let's say it's not that we need always to think of cancer as, uh, you know, that sentence. Mm. Mm, that's the most important thing. We need to, um, yeah, to have this uh, sense also um, of, uh, um, you know, the desire, literally, to bring back uh, to a state of health uh, the full body. So it's not an organ-based disease. That's what it makes it sometimes me shivering. <laughs> like <laughs> when they say I have a, a, lung, a lung cancer, I have a liver cancer. Okay, but remember, it's not just one organ. Except Actually, your liver doesn't live outside of you. So mm. you need to think of the whole body. And again, that's the new form of medicine I can see personalized and uh, definitely uh, taking into account the whole bodies and so considering also the mind in it um yeah that's how i picture it <laughs> oh yeah yeah I, I love hearing you articulate that it's something i think zach bush has also spoken about in terms of cancer being a condition of miscommunication or disconnection within the cells and we both have been on journeys of exploring ancestral or indigenous healing traditions. Love to hear about your apprenticeship and studentship with various indigenous healers and how you were guided especially towards Mayan medicine traditions. Yes, um, so it's uh, an ongoing path eh, because I'm still very interested in uh, knowing different perspectives as well. Um, sometimes we have a romantic idea you know, of indigenous people and ancestral medicine. My real um, uh, interest was to find common threads in different cultures, in time and space, distant in time and space, and to find you know, some kind of universal truths. Uh, <laughs> I was very idealistic, I'm mm-hmm. still, and I found them. Mm, so it doesn't matter um, the geography of it or the time. 
Um, what is very common to most uh, ancestral practices or belief systems is that um, um, the importance is given to self-healing. It's actually the only healing, uh, the only existing healing or the only healing available because uh, there is this um, importance given to the inner abilities, and so the regenerative abilities of uh, the person. And uh, as I always notice, um, when we speak about these medicines, we speak also a lot of sensorial uh, experiences. Mm. Instead of relying on external technologies, like now if you want to know what's going on inside your body, you have an X-ray or uh, ultrasounds. <laughs> so what is special no, in shamanism and ancestral practices? Mm. You start to give um, power, because that's the word. You give power to your inner abilities, inner technology. In the same way, we don't need a, really a thermometer to know if our temperature is going yeah. up. And the same way, we can start to observe ourselves using these inner tools. I found this very profound, because if we think of the placebo effect, at the end is that, <laughs> no. We can call it in many ways, but it's giving power to the mind and to our abilities to change the organic field, to change our physical parts. Is it possible? Yes, it is. But in shamanic cultures, it's more evident because it's part of their belief systems. For, for us, it's more complicated. Mm. No? We also live in an age which is very confusing you know, because we are full of information full of technology. And uh, when something happens to us, the very first thing that we do, especially when we are sick, we ask the help of another person who is not us, who doesn't know what's going on. So we just rely a lot on external power. While in shamanic cultures, uh, yeah, you are mostly you can be alone. <laughs> you have the assistance of an healer or of another person. And... Uh, what we call like plant medicines or natural therapies, they are just uh, um, assisting your healing. They're not provoking or they're not the only, you know, uh, response. Mm, exactly the opposite of what we experience in modern medicine. When uh, I want a pill because I want to fix a problem, I can fix a symptom or I can fix a disease. It doesn't matter. I just look for an answer and a cure in something external to me. When we know that we live inside ourselves, ourselves and we need to change also ourselves deeply if we want to heal, and that's what uh, made me think a lot of uh, the change in paradigm, paradigm that we will probably experience in the future. And there is absolute need of shifting <laughs> the, the the value of medicine. So medicine cannot be always something external. And it can be, you know, of support, but not the only cure available. So first thing in shamanic culture is that then um, against the romantic ideas we may have, um, ancestral practices are very much rustic and uh, concretely earthly mm. and uh, very practical. <laughs> so yes, there is a lot of spiritual uh, approach to every disorder. And um, the thing that I love more is that there is no need to name a disorder like now. Uh, what do I have? Uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, I feel better. <laughs> Why is that? Because we think, <laughs> erroneously, that when we name something, we know it. It's the way we proceed. Mm, that's the human being. We name something, then we know it. Is it true? No. Actually, it's the opposite. We just give names and that's it. In the shamanic cultures, it's the opposite. There is no need to name a specific disorder because it's personal. So if a certain person is experiencing certain symptoms, and there is uh, the need to understand, investigate, you know, which elements are corrupted, where is the imbalance, that has to be tailored. Mm. So it makes more sense, for example, to say this was uh, 
ELISA uh, Spring uh, Season 2012 Disorder, <laughs> let's say, instead of calling it with a sterile name, because definitely um, in shamanic cultures, we need to look at all these different elements and the context is very relevant. So no need to name it, <laughs> but yeah. just to understand it. That's what what's the philosophy about it, that comprehension is the real medicine. And the byproduct of comprehending is uh, to be healed. <laughs> that's, that's very much uh, uh, overwhelming, you know, if we think about it really. Is that if I know myself better, I'm going to heal definitely from many points of view. So that's why in uh, ancestral practices we find uh, always alteration of consciousness. Uh, it's not just for the sake of it, not just to go out of your body and experience it is, um, or reconnecting with the divine. It's not just because of that. Um, we have the amazing uh, ability, literally, to change our state of consciousness. And as we change it, we can have another perspective. So when we have another perspective, novel thinking, for example, about a disorder, and then it comes to the diagnosis, no? The shamanic diagnosis is very different. <laughs> so yeah. you alter your consciousness to deeply understand the situation. And understanding, again, is the real aim. Sometimes to comprehend, you need to go in certain realms. It can be in the labyrinth of the mind or somewhere else. But that's why psychedelics also been brought in these cultures. It was very spontaneous and it was effective. So it has helped people to understand disorders. Um, yeah, definitely in a different way. <laughs> so it's completely different from what is uh, modern medicine's interpretation, but still very valid. Mm. Yeah, I love the way you just articulated that. It's um, so relevant to something I'm writing about at the moment, actually exploring altered states of consciousness throughout time and this different way of knowing Something you've mentioned in, in some of the herbalism courses you're, you're running is this notion of ecological consciousness. And I would love for you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, often when I refer to ecological consciousness, I really think of a spontaneous happening. It can happen, for example, in the life of an herbalist to grow your plants, to have your own garden, and to start to think of plants in a different way. So you'd stop to grow plants or preserve nature because it's giving you gifts or because a certain plant has a, a certain medicinal properties. So not for your own benefit, but you start to develop something in, and it's natural, uh, which is protection of nature and beauty. What you want is really to recreate harmony and to recreate harmony, you have, you know, certain tasks. <laughs> so ecological consciousness is a, a something that can be developed just by working with plants, not even ingesting them. Mm. Uh, somehow this word was coming up uh, when uh, um, we were speaking about, for example, ayahuasca and uh, uh, other psychedelics, mm, like you mentioned, DMT alone can be uh, triggering ecological consciousness in people. Why? Because, um, and this can be done even without psychedelics, to be honest, mm. um, we start to perceive ourselves as a unit, mm, a full organism. We can easily melt with the universe. We can easily melt with consciousness itself. Mm. And this openness uh, has consequences, beautiful ones. And so you start to develop something which is beyond your own body, beyond your own consciousness. You feel definitely one with everything. So um, do you want to preserve it? Definitely. You want to preserve it because so you're alive? Not necessarily. It's not a survival modality. Actually, it's the opposite <laughs> because you have a certain peace of mind, also respect to death, uh, and that can be done in, in different ways. So again, not just with psychedelics. Um, definitely, 
uh, ecological consciousness is developing. And you start to uh, be contagious potentially. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why uh, transpersonal psychology, for example, was that. So now when you're able to change yourself, change your attitude, and then potentially that can be spread to other human beings mm, collectively. You can, uh, yeah, you can see the change. So I think ecological consciousness is very, very much important in the work of herbalists or all natural therapists, but for everybody, to be honest. Mm. Um, yeah, for this reason, because uh, even like uh, considering that there are some endangered species, no? <laughs> and then you want to uh, propagate them. This is the more practical, let's say, aspect of it. But then it can be deeper mm, so that... Uh, instead of, you know, just uh, tendering the garden, uh, you feel like uh, much, you know, uh, connected and exposed at the same time to nature. And that's an amazing feeling to have. <laughs> it's uh, healing itself, you know. So yeah. um, that's why when I give these courses, I, I try to transfer these that eventually most people will have. Mm, it's a natural event, uh, and uh, an example is, I don't use myself a lot of medicine. I don't actually have uh, herbal teas every day or extracts and so on. Because when you work <laughs> with these plants and you establish a relationship with them, like I'm speaking about living beings and so on, um, it's enough. <laughs> Most of the time you feel healthy just to be exposed to that. And that's because you open up yourself. That's why. That's what I think you overwrite uh, the more material aspects. So it's not just uh, I can actually get the active principle from uh, nettle or from uh, you know uh, other plants, and I healed because there is an active principle. It, it's actually beyond that. And um, that's the main goal of ancestral practices. So to eventually also not, um, you are not in need of ingesting or using a plant mm. to be healed. And so it's again uh, the spirit and the mind over matter <laughs> at the end of the day. So you are able to uh, overwrite mm, everything just with the, the two other powers. <laughs> yeah, I love how you just articulated that and I really resonate. I think at the beginning of my rekindling of a kind of herbaloric connection with the land, I really overdid the herbal teas. <laughs> um, and especially I, I was having lemon balm every day because I knew that it, was help, it would help with my thyroid. And now I, I don't need to consume that lemon balm. I can just see that that is a deep dear ally of mine and I have this real friendship with this plant now um, but to kind of contradict that I I also feel very drawn to dietas and I appreciate it would be a lot on the system to do this but it sounds quite magical especially the Shapipo approach where there's this sense of finding an Icaro through the plant and um, or the plant offering an Icaro and so on and I know that you run dietas um, yourself, so I'd love to hear you share about this work. Mm, definitely, as you said, the dieta is also fascinating to me, and uh, I worked a lot with dietas, especially in the past when I first uh, lived uh, with different indigenous groups, especially in Central South America, which is, yeah, you know, it's the origin of the shamanic dieta. Um, it has changed me a lot, actually, and um, the thoughts I had before about ingesting, you know, continuously like a plant in order to connect, uh, I found that uh, with the long periods of isolation in the forest, um, with the plant, of course, then you arrive to the point where you're so much connected, especially if you have, if you had a diet with the same plant for, let's say, weeks, uh, that there is no need to have the plant anymore in your life, especially if it's a strong psychedelic plant or anyway a mind-altering plant. Um, you are connected after. It's kind of like uh, incredible, but it is. So what's the purpose and what is a dieta at the end? 
um, in the old traditions of having a dieta, um, that was not, let's say, for external people. Now, for example, a lot of people that can have diets in the forest and uh, sessions of ayahuasca, even uh, like uh, many during a week. In the past, uh, the traditions was designed for uh, future shamans or healers, or people that were in charge of medicine in the village or in the area, in the community, let's say. There were um, training periods, tests, and uh, it's a sort of university uh, <laughs> that they had to pass. Like now modern doctors, they need to, you know, attend courses, uh, give exams, have their practice and so on to prove they're good doctors. In the past, shamans, even in Siberia, so not just in the um, Latin American traditions, they had to prove to themselves and to the others that they were able to work with different plants and pass periods of severe disease um, so experience themselves these moments, both mentally and physically, to arrive to the bottom. So uh, to a moment when they were losing consciousness, they were extremely sick, and uh, proving um, that they were able to heal. Um, the isolation itself it was the big uh, training because that was also changed me a lot, you know, the perspective of medicine not ingested. <laughs> so already like being alone without any technology around, just in the forest and with uh, without entertainment, <laughs> which is hard, you know, for us, um, it brought me to the concept of uh, uh, going deeper oneself, sometimes enough uh, to find answers. So... The fact that then you have uh, a plant, which can be different, psychedelic or not, and you establish a very strong dialogue with this plant in terms of weeks, uh, um, it's definitely studying, <laughs> it's learning. That's why they're called uh, master plants, because they teach you, really do. Um, how is this dialogue then? Just definitely is beyond words, so it has not to be written. It has to be perceived and experienced. So it's pure sensorial uh, experience, the dieta. Um, the fact that you may have plants that disturb your own homeostasis, so even physically, and you pass moments of extreme sickness and you find in yourself, you know, the ability to heal, and mentally also you are absolutely disrupted. You can pass moments of schizophrenia mm. and uh, alteration of moods. Uh, these are all part of the training because you should be able to navigate your own mind and to find answers and to potentially pass what is called not the darkest night of the soul. Mm. <laughs> In all the shamanic traditions, we find this uh, everywhere. Mm. What is this? No, why, why should I pass that first? <laughs> is it, uh, you know, mandatory? Yes. So if you want to be a medicine man or woman, it's mandatory to pass this uh, extreme moment of disruption, the breaking up of meostas in all senses, uh, to find back yourself. Mm, so uh, from pieces to complete. Mm. So to prove that you are a good doctor, you need to have experienced yourself these disorders. Um, it makes a lot of sense, you know, Veronica, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense <laughs> that if I had uh, myself, for example, a chronic disorder and I had the time to investigate, understand deeply what, what was going on, I can transfer this knowledge. Mm? So in order to transfer uh, this knowledge, which is not like uh, only mm, inner knowledge, uh, it's definitely also the connection with plants, it opens up this knowledge uh, to other, you know, realms. Um, let's say, collective knowledge, mm? it can be transferred to others. Mm? So that also, after a period of isolation, when you're disconnected from the others, then you come back, but you come back with, uh, uh, you know, answers with different knowledge and wisdom. And again, it's not that then the shamans, um, they are 
uh, instructing people or ordering people to follow, uh, follow a specific treatments. They are educating them. They're encouraging them to do the same. So, and that's what I love more. Um, now, in modern times, these dietas are open to everybody, you know, for the, I think it's important, actually. I don't feel there is contamination. Um, it's just important to notice that there are two different things. So, for example, I can engage in a dieta, which can be shorter. That's not to be a year, you know, in isolation, <laughs> which is kind of a drastic experience. And still, I can uh, increase my ability to have this inner dialogue with everything which is in nature, uh, with the natural environment, with uh, my own mind and so on. So it's a moment of a profound reconnection and uh, it requires, of course, the breaking down of what is known. And that's the most uh, lovable part, you know, because even if it's uh, the panic room, let's mm-hmm. say, um, after that, mm, there is great uh, uh, appreciation mm, for these. And then the dialogue is not lost. And so the conversation with nature, uh, universe, everything is open. And so it's uh, definitely, um, yeah, the first step mm, that can uh, literally help everybody to uh, to understand better not just the shamanic uh, uh, culture, but also the self. So uh, it's an icebreaker. <laughs> it can be strong or mild, because depending also on the plants, definitely there are plants that are gentle. And uh, yeah, it's the beginning of something that then has to be cultivated. Yeah, a dieta sounds very intriguing. And I have a few friends who have gone through the experience I think with what it sounds like the more intense um, plants to work with definitely intrigued so I know that you've taken your world and your work to Costa Rica I'd love to hear what you've got going on there and how that land is shaping what you're offering um, now for example we we will start in the summer period um, several courses trainings as well that are dedicated to chronic disorders. As we were pointing in this podcast, is one of my favorite subjects, and I think we need to speak a lot about it. And so it's a training that is open to professionals and non-professionals, so it can be also like to investigate your own chronic mm. disease and to give these tools, strategies, and the ability for people to, again, to find back this inner technology, the inner technology of self-healing and uh, so to open up uh, to the understanding also of a chronic disorder. And definitely the environment will help because to be stuck in a beautiful forest and <laughs> with wildlife, uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely uh, a good womb. Uh, but the big project, which is not going to happen tomorrow, but is ongoing, is to, um, to open a, um, yeah, a clinic, um, uh, with natural therapies, which is focused definitely in, uh, on chronic disorders and cancer mm. as well, because I really feel there is a void and uh, yeah, we slowly we should feel it. And so um, the future may be more and more of these structures uh, that will be created by people. So to offer, uh, you know, the space and time <laughs> and education that is needed. Head to alchemiahealingarts.com to learn more about Elisa's courses, research and healing work. Thank you for being here with the Rooted Healing community. Through deepened imagination, consciousness expansion and cross-cultural wisdom exchange, we explore psychedelic culture, spirituality and ecology to ignite collective healing. 
We offer nature-immersive ceremonial gatherings, legal and safe psychedelic-assisted psilocybin retreats, integrative healing courses, and a growing collection of resources rooted in regenerative reciprocity. Visit rootedhealing.org to learn more. Please do consider joining our patron community, where you can gift forward and support our work in exchange for bonus material, book and gift giveaways, meditations, workshops, episode transcripts, community discussion and array of resources from our guests and discounts to our events. Your monthly contribution, which can be as little as £2 a month, helps us cover the costs of running the show and our hope is to gather enough abundant gifters to afford professional audio productions so that we can free up more time to focus on gathering together in person, which is the heartbeat of our work. Think of it as buying me a hot chocolate once a month. I'd be very grateful. Our patron has such a rich archive already to support you and you can gain immediate access when signing up. Patron is an easy to use app, both on desktop and on mobile, providing a clear space to explore our archive and upcoming gifts. Come follow us on Instagram at Rooted Healing Co. or find us on the various platforms you tune into. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show if these stories and conversations are touching you. It's a beautiful act of reciprocity to make those couple of clicks and help others discover our work. The music in this episode was by Mike Howe, Odro, and Chris Park. Thank you so much for enriching this episode with your creations. If you'd like to gift your music to the Rooted Healing podcast, please reach out to us via the link in the show notes. I'm your host, Veronica Stanwell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>